0: I know those who have been watching these sermons or these YouTube broadcasts over these past weeks and months are always interested at the sit- this arrangements, my seating arrangements, whether I'm sitting over there or whether I'm sitting here. So, I'm sitting here in the corner um, today. I'm sitting on what I call Uncle Robert's chair. Who's Uncle Robert? Well, he's actually a great uncle, long dead. I didn't actually know him. He died before I was born. But he was a minister member, Robert Moffat Gillan. He was minister for 33 years of Brunsfield United Free Church, then Brunsfield Parish Church in Edinburgh. That church building is still used for worship. as the centre of a very lively and active congregation, Brunsfield Evangelical Church. Um, and Robert Moffat Gillan, my great uncle, um, was one of those well-known ministers of his day. Long forgotten about now, but he was one of those well-known ministers of the day. And he was very active, not only within the life of his own church and congregation, but he, along with other ministers, very active in defending the rights of the church as being separate from the powers and authorities of the state. Back in his day, into the after the war, into the early 50s, there was a whole debate about bringing bishops into the church. And he, along with others, saw this as a major attack against the principles of the Reformation. The church is a, has a separate spiritual entity, a spiritual authority. It's accountable to Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, head of the church. And the civil power shouldn't intervene or have any influence over the affairs of the church, the internal workings of the church, whether that be through the appointment of bishops or through the Acts of Parliament you might say that there is a certain connection to today, and certainly my concern and other ministers' concern about the influence the state now has over what the church does within its four walls um, in terms of public worship. But that's for another day, that debate. Um, he became a doctor, he was a Reverend Dr. Robert Wofford-Gillan, because he did a PhD, as one does. And his PhD was on this gentleman, John Davidson of Preston Pines. Now, you certainly won't have heard of him, probably, unless you're a very keen person on the Reformation. John Davidson um, was the next generation after John Knox. He had heard John Knox preach. and and was a follower, in a sense, of the Reformation that John Knox and others were involved in. And he rose to a degree of fame within the Scottish church at the end of the 16th century into the early part of the 17th century, meaning the 1580s and 90s and the early 1600s. He uh, was well known as a great preacher and and, and committed to, again, the separation of the church from the state, having that godly integrity within the life of the church, being a a separate power to the power of the king. And because of that, on a number of occasions, he he and others fell into, how would you say it, somewhat um, disagreement with the king, king, with James VI, or James I of Great Britain and of um, Ireland. And the reason he did that was because he challenged the king. He believed it was vital that the king, along with everyone else, should hear the gospel. Indeed, the Presbytery of Edinburgh, carrying out its presbytery visitation of congregations, also demanded the right to visit the king in Holyrood Palace and to question him about his spirituality. And as a result of that, um, John Davidson, Preston Pans, was invited to preach before the king. And in his sermon, based on Matthew 4, verse 16 and 17, where we hear of Jesus calling people to repent, is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. And as he begins that public ministry of Jesus, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come, Matthew 4, verse 17. And preaching a sin before King James, um, after rebuking him for his um, Godly, ungodly, rather, language, his swearing, and for not keeping the Sabbath, and for various other moral sins, he preached that text before the king, telling him, first of all, that he, along with everybody else, was a miserable in a miserable blind estate, and that all of humanity by nature was without Christ. He then went on to point towards the comfortable light of salvation in Christ, He then invoked the king and called upon the king, like all men and women, to receive Christ's light by faith, wrought by the Holy Spirit in the preaching of the gospel. And lastly, he called the king, along with all believers, to walk in that light of Christ, so that we may glorify him, the one who has translated us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The result of that sermon was that John Davidson ended up in Edinburgh Castle in the jail, And he then went back to Preston Pants, where he was under house arrest when he died. His ministry, his gospel proclamation, didn't receive a very warm response. But he, along with many, were convinced that those in power, those in influence, those who had authority, those who were the movers and shakers of the time, should hear the gospel and should be presented with the claims of Christ. And that's always been the case. The story we're reading this morning from the book of Acts is all about somebody who was a mover and shaker, somebody who had authority, somebody who, in the, as far as the civil powers were concerned, had a degree of, of significance. And yet he too, this Ethiopian eunuch we're told, needed to hear the gospel and to repent and to believe. Let's read together from Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, and reading from verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasure of kandake which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Astos and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bringing God's word. To those who have influence. That certainly was the story here, but it was bringing God's word in the power and in the authority and the direction of the Spirit. Commentators of the time, speaking about John Davison of Preston Pan, said he was a man anointed with the Spirit of God and authoritative in what he said, and so was Philip. Here's someone, Philip, the evangelist, someone who is open to the Spirit of God. We know this because, very simply, the story tells us an angel of the Lord comes to Philip, goes south to the road, to the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gazov. So he started out and went. He was obedient. He was sensitive to the Spirit of God. He was open to God's leading and prompting in his life. Now, of course, it's vital for us to understand that above everything else, the evangelism that the church is called to undertake—our own personal witness, uh, our call to confront society, to the rulers of society, to those in authority—with the claims of Christ and the claims of Christ's kingdom. The heaven of the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To do that, to do that effectively, to do that confidently, to do that in a fruitful way will involve and must depend upon the Spirit of God. That goes without saying. It goes without saying because, of course, that's why the Spirit of God has been given to us. These verses I've mentioned many times before from John chapter 16, where the disciples are generally, understandably, concerned about this idea of Jesus going away and listen to what he says. John chapter sixteen and verse seven. But very truly Jesus says, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the Prince of the world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And so Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the Spirit of God is vital to make Jesus, to make him known, to reveal him, and to apply that to lives and living, convicting the world and convicting men and women of their sin, convincing them of who Jesus, the righteous one, is, and bringing them to faith and belief and trust. The Spirit of God is vital in the church's ministry, evangelism or whatever else. And Philip is someone who's an evangelist, yes, because he's open to the prompting and leading of the Spirit and has confidence in the good news about Jesus. We see that as we read on in the story. He meets on the way this Ethiopian eunuch. That in itself is quite significant. And First of all, here is someone who is well-to-do. He's got a chariot, we're told. And he's an important official in charge of all the treasure of the Queen of the Ethiopians. He has obviously got wealth because he's got a scripture, he's got um text, he's got a book with him in a sense. Um, not a book that we understand it, but he has obviously um, um, books of material that he can read. Um, on his way, we're told, he's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. He no doubt has servants and others attending, the people driving the chariot and the horses and everything else. He's sitting in the back seat, um, in a sense, relaxing. Um, we're told that he was a worshipper of God. He had gone up to Jerusalem to worship God. God, And so here is a non-Jew who has a faith in Yahweh, Jehovah, the living God, the only true God. Now, of course, the story behind all that is also quite important. Some of you will remember the story of the Queen of Sheba coming to visit Solomon. Um, the Queen of Ethiopia of the Southern Kingdoms, who came to Solomon because she had heard, were told all the wisdom all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, and she goes to meet Solomon, she asks some questions, she comes and asks him for advice in many ways, she's filled with awe at what she says, and she also watches and attends to the temple and sees the burnt offerings that are made, and she were told she was overwhelmed, first Kings chapter ten, overwhelmed by what she saw. And at the very end, after she gives thanks to Solomon for his wisdom and grace, she says this first Kings ten verse nine Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel, because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And Solomon gives the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for beside what he had given her to his royal bounty, then she left and returned home with her retinue to her own country. So here's someone who went back to Ethiopia with that awareness of the majesty and might of God and of God's special place, special love, his eternal love for the people of Israel. And so that background, that God awareness was brought into that country out with the Jewish domain. God was at work. The promise he had given to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed, that was being worked out through Solomon and through the story of Israel. And then it's also possible that other Jewish people had through trade and other ways, had come to Ethiopia and had been involved and in, again. Something of the scriptures of God, something of the wisdom of God had been shared amongst the Ethiopian people. So now we have this civil servant, or rather, well he is a civil servant, but a high courtier to the queen, somebody who's in charge of the treasury, someone who wants to worship this only true God who's gone to Jerusalem. We see him being prepared by the Spirit of God. He's reading the Bible. He's reading the scriptures. Isaiah 53, that very clear messianic part of the book of the prophet of Isaiah. And so God's at work, the Spirit of God is at work, both prompting and leading Philip and giving him the the willingness and the courage to go and to be obedient, and also at work within this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, preparing him. And as he reads the scriptures, we're told, he's reading the book of the prophet Isaiah. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, silent, so he did not open his mouth. And he goes on, the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Philip's led and directed by the Spirit. The Ethiopian eunuch is prompted and prepared by the Spirit. And the Spirit of God now reveals Jesus in the Scriptures. Just as Jesus said, he would make Jesus known. Jesus said the Spirit of God would make Jesus known. And this is what's happening here. And Philip tells him the good news about Jesus. Of course, the good news about Jesus involved the bad news. The bad news about the Ethiopian eunuch's need of conversion. The bad news that, that John Davison shared with the king in Holyrood Palace, way back in the in the early sixteen the bad news of our need of a saviour, of that need to be convicted of our awareness, that God's kingdom, God's reality, God's power, God's sovereignty transcends everything that is temporal, material, and human in this world. It's before him that we all need to give our account, not before the first minister or the prime minister or before some scientist or before some medical professor or advisor. It's before the king of kings, the lord of glory, the mighty one, the holy one of Israel, the righteous one, that we must give our account. And so the bad news is, we need to repent, as Jesus said at the beginning of His ministry: repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the good news, of course, is the one that in Jesus, that suffering servant, the one who's led like a sheep to the slaughter and a lamb before its shearer is silent, so before that suffering servant, that sin bearer, we have one who is a saviour. It's good for us to be reminded, is it not, that the calling of the church whether as it stands before the high or before the lowly, before those who are powerful or before those who are, as far as the world is concerned, insignificant. That same message of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, the only saviour needs to be proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, with the authority of the Spirit, as commentators made about that man of past generations. That, That anointing of the Spirit, Philip has it, And we know, we can see how he has it, because we go on to read. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? We think about it. Here's a man, a man of status, a man of significance, a man who's out with the Jewish faith from Ethiopia, a man who's sitting in his chariot, no doubt well-dressed up, a man who's who's got a lot going for him, humanly speaking. And yet here is someone that through the fearless presentation of the gospel from God's word pointing to Jesus Christ, here is a man who's willing to get out his chariot, strip off and jump into a pool of water and be baptized. How powerful the gospel is. It takes those who are high and makes them humble. And those who are lowly, it lifts up and gives a new identity and a new status and a new standing. And we see that work here. As a God-fearer, it may well have been that he would have had some form of baptism in the past. It was well known uh, in in the the Jewish faith, certainly by the time of Jesus, that those who were God-fearers, that is non-Jews who worship the one true God, Yahweh, that as a sign of their admission into the the, the God-fearing community, they would pass through waters of baptism. And so, in a sense, he'd already been baptized. He'd already gone through religious ritual. He had already, in one sense, identified with God's people. But here, obviously, the Ethiopian eunuch realizes that this gospel, this good news about Jesus, is far different from outward conformity, or religious establishment, or ritual. Here is a life-changing, life-transforming encounter with the living God. And so, he's not afraid. He's not ashamed to get out of his chariot, to strip off, and were told that both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. And when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Philip and took him away. But the eunuch, although he didn't see him again, went on his way rejoicing. God's work in God's way, bringing forth the results that God looks for. Life's changed and transformed. By the power of the gospel. And of course the Ethiopian goes home. He doesn't see Philip again we're told. And the church in Ethiopia today, especially the traditional church, the Coptic church in Ethiopia, would draw its line of lineage of faith right back to the Ethiopian eunuch converted under Philip's ministry and even before that to the Queen of Sheba being overwhelmed as she sat in the temple and saw the glory of God revealed in the worship of the ancient Israelites. God preparing a people for himself, God fulfilling the promise he'd given to Abraham that all the nations of the world were blessed, God fulfilling the promise that he said through his son Jesus Christ, that they were to go from Jerusalem and starting in Samaria, and then to the very ends of the earth, they were to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom which calls us to repent. The kingdom which invites us into a living relationship with the living God. And the Spirit of God is at work through all of this. My friends, I hope our hearts are stirred as we read this story. Probably some of us are very familiar with it. Perhaps others of us are not. It's going to be the first time we've heard this story. But it should stir our hearts in these days where the gospel still is the power of God to salvation to all who would believe. Now, of course, not all will believe. As I told you at the beginning, John Davison paid for his proclamation of the gospel by going into jail, being put into prison, and then under house arrest back at Preston Pans. Earlier on in his life, because of his fearless preaching, we're told that he had to have an armed guard to take him safely from the mans to the church. At Liberton in, in Edinburgh, Liberton Kirk, um, because he he had challenged the powers and principalities of this world. My friends, today and in the days that lie ahead, it may well be very costly to proclaim the gospel. It is an offence to those who think they have it all. It's a strange to those who think they're safe in their own knowledge or wealth or power or understanding. It is bad news to those who are perishing. And so to be faithful to the gospel may well involve great trials and challenges, not just in past centuries, but in the days and years that lie ahead. And I strongly encourage you to reflect upon that. It was for the disciples, the apostles in the book of Acts, martyred for the faith. But, but, a very important but, it produces a fruit that lasts forever. To those who are being saved, Paul tells us, it's the aroma of life. To this Ethiopian eunuch. Going home, were told, rejoicing. His life was never the same again. Can you imagine the impact that must have had, that encounter, even on the people who were his servants, those who had been driving the chariot, those who were attending to him? Imagine when he went back as a treasure to the Queen of the Ethiopians and shared with her and with the other courtiers about what God had done and how God had promised and fulfilled in Scripture the coming of the Messiah and the impact of that. The evangelism that came out of that. A tremendous story of new beginnings, of lives changed, of a nation impacted with God, of an area of society, the influence of the powerful and those who were movers and shakers being impacted by the gospel. All of that is borne witness to by this incredible story in the book of Acts. We're going to pause there in our studies in the book of Acts. The next couple of weeks, we're going to look at different themes. Sometime later, we will return to the story of Paul's conversion, the conversion of Saul. But let this final story for our present studies stir our hearts. The power of the gospel, anointed by the Spirit, having authority that comes alone from confidence in who God is. That was Philip. And the impact was amazing. That was true for John Davison. And perhaps the impact wasn't so well seen, but here we are not 1595 or 1601, but four centuries later still talking about him. What eye hath not seen, what ear cannot tell, what God has prepared and purposed for his people. With God, nothing is in vain. Let's pray together. God our Father, we thank you for the story of Philip we thank you for reminding us of the necessity of being open to the Holy Spirit, of allowing him to guide us and to lead us, and of his work at going ahead and preparing people's hearts and minds so that when we come alongside, it might not be a man sitting in a chariot, it might simply be a conversation with a friend, with a family member, or someone sitting on a train, or some chance encounter at work, but we are drawn alongside, and in that conversation, it's clear that you have already repaired a heart to hear the gospel, They've been stirred, they become aware of God, aware of, of that divine power, aware of the kingdom. they become aware of their need to discover more about that, perhaps more, more aware of their own need of a saviour, their, their need of forgiveness and restoration in their life. They've been drawn to read your word, to get a copy of the Bible, to dig out that old Gideon's New Testament that they've been given many years before. And they've started reading and reflecting or going online and hearing things. And you have been at work by the Spirit of God seeking and searching and drawing to yourself those whom you are saving, and you call us to come alongside, to bring a word in season, but above everything else, to point to Jesus Christ. Lord, we offer ourselves afresh in our own lives and our own living. We offer ourselves afresh as a congregation, weak and feeble in many ways as we are, and how we pray that in this day, and in this generation, as in days past, we might not be afraid, to bear witness to Jesus, to those who are powerful, to those who are influential, to those who are highly regarded in society, as well as to those who are weak and frail and humble. Give us courage, Lord, that we too may be evangelists for the King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray. Amen.